Hi, my name is Adrienne Beatty, and I'm the Kids Ministry Director at Saltbox Church, where you can find a community who will walk with you into a deeper relationship with King Jesus. All right. Um, I am in Acts 17. Um, we, if you were here last week, who was here last week? Come on. Okay, about maybe a third of us, half of us. Okay. So um, if you know anything about the Word, the Word of God is living and active, double-edged sword. That's, I'm quoting a scripture verse. Um, it divides to soul and spirit, joint and marrow, even dividing the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So what I want to do is I want to actually take a look at Acts 17 again. And last week we looked at it through the lens of um, idolatry. Paul's really talking about idolatry in Athens. But I want to do a pivot this morning, and I want to take a look at Acts 17 through the lens and sort of this idea or theory that Paul has been perfectly shaped, perfectly prepared, perfectly made. Every trial, every tribulation, every suffering, every difficulty, everything, good, bad, ugly, even sinful, in the life of the Apostle Paul, when surrendered to the Lordship of King Jesus, is now being used not only for Paul's good, but for the universal expansion of the kingdom of God in and through his life. You follow me? Or was I too early in the sermon to take the preaching? I mean, <laughs> so, but here's what I, and then, so we're going we're gonna to take a look at the Apostle Paul and go, okay, what went into shaping his life? And I'm going to propose to you this morning that he um, really, that this, this particular passage, what happened in Athens, is the beginning of the high point of the Apostle Paul's ministry. Okay? He's going to go from Athens to a place called Corinth, and there's about three-quarters of a million people in Corinth. From Corinth, he's going over to Ephesus at some point, and there's about half a million people in Ephesus. Eventually, he's going to wind his way up to Rome, and there's over a million people in Rome. And he is the only person anywhere in this time and age that is perfectly shaped and fashioned to carry the living and active Word of God to these major metropolitan cities and areas, and then to write two-thirds of the New Testament. Now, after we do that, I'm going to make a quick pivot into Michael's life, the way I've been shaped. And then we're going to conclude with a pivot into your life and how you've been or are being shaped. Amen? If you're not a church person and we say things like, amen, that's just churchy for go get it, come on, yes, we believe it, it's like yelling at a Super Bowl game, right? That's, that's what we're saying. Amen, God is good, we believe Jesus is alive and risen, preach it. So, okay, um, Acts 17, um, I am also going to take Acts 17, I'm not going to turn here this morning, we don't have the time, but if uh, you want to make a note, we're going to take Acts 17 through the lens of Jeremiah 18, Isaiah 64, and Romans 9, 19 to 21. Some of you are like, say that again. Okay, I will. We're going to take uh, Acts 17, the shaping of the Apostle Paul, through Jeremiah 18, Isaiah 64, and Romans 9, verse 19 to 21. Does anyone know what those have in common? That, all three passages, all three of those texts, talk about God being the great potter and we being a lump of clay. 
okay? If you're here this morning, you go, man, I actually, I feel like a big lump of clay. I've got good news for you. So do I. Welcome. You're in a safe place. You can just be your big old lump of clay self, okay? But we're going to take a look this morning because God actually, all three of those texts have this idea that God is the great potter and he actually throws the clay onto this wheel and through the difficulties and challenges and successes and ebbs and flows of life, he shapes us and he forms us masterfully. And at times he even collapses the whole thing and reforms it again. Some of you go, oh, I know what that feels like, to be fully folded in and collapsed and then reformed. But this is the God that formed Paul. This is the God that is forming Michael. And this is the God that is forming you, me. Yes. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> Let's, uh, I'm going to start again at Acts 17, and I'm going to start in verse, I have fully lost my place. 16, verse 16. Now, Athens. Has anybody been to Athens? handful of people. Okay, Athens at this particular um, point is the intellectual center of the world, undisputed intellectual center of the world. Um, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle come from here. I mean, it is the very epicenter, and it's past its prime at this point. Um, but for Paul to be released into the fullness of who he is as a preacher of the gospel of King Jesus, um, making his way to Rome, writer of much of the New Testament, here is where I think the best of Paul begins to come out. Now, um, well, let's just start reading and then I'll, then I'll pause. Acts 17, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, now that's Timothy, Dr. Luke, and Silas. That's the guys he rolled with. He was by himself because they tried to kill him and they had to smuggle him out of Berea under cover of night. So Paul went over to Athens. Okay, Paul was waiting for them in Athens. He was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Listen last week if you want more on that. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So where is he preaching? All over, at the grocery store, at the mall, in the downtown square, in the synagogue. Like he, is, he is all over. He is making a mess. He's rattling the cage. Okay, <clears throat> verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. I talked a little about that last week if you want more. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. This is really important. Circle it if, you're, if you've got a Bible. He seems to be advocating foreign gods. I'm going to tell you in a line a minute. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting. Okay, now, in the year 399 before Christ, or before the Common Era, there was a guy named Socrates that lived. Anybody ever heard of Socrates? All right, cool. So there's a guy named Socrates, and he was put on trial let me just quote here. He was actually put on trial in 399 for advocating foreign gods and leading the young people of the city astray. Now, here's why this is important. I would say to you, and not every scholar would agree, this is Michael's opinion, and there's three or four scholars I could quote that would, would certainly agree, but my opinion is that Dr. Luke is masterfully saying the Apostle Paul is about to be put on trial like 
Socrates was put on trial. Socrates was put on trial for advocating foreign gods, for leading the young people astray. And so Dr. Luke is making this really clean and clear parallel that the Apostle Paul is being put on trial just like Socrates. Now, if you know anything about Socrates, at the end of the trial, he was condemned to death by forced poisoning. They forced him to eat and drink something that was poisoned, and he died. So he was found guilty by the then Oropagus. Okay, so let's go back in and read this, because this is super important. He seems, um, latter half of 18, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Who advocated foreign gods? Socrates. Okay, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him. Have you ever been taken? They escorted him nicely. They invited him to dinner. They asked him to speak. No, no, no. What's it say? They took him. So I, I would propose to you, and again, not every scholar would agree, but I would propose to you that Paul is actually being taken by force to the Oropagus. And the Oropagus um, was a court. In this time and era, it was a court, and its status and role changed as political agendas transitioned. But they tried serious offenses, this is the Oropagus, including homicide, arson, religious cases. And I would say to you with almost total certainty, Paul was on trial before before or when he appeared before this Oropagus. Okay? Now, that makes this, uh, and I, I tried really hard not to dip into this last week, but that makes this even more amazing when you look at Paul in all of his courage when he stands up and calls the city totally ignorant and wrong and introduces them to who? King Jesus. So uh, as he is standing up preaching, what is the potential penalty for what he's doing? Death. So what Dr. Luke is, in my opinion, almost certainly proposing is, just like Socrates got tried and killed um, for teaching about a foreign god, they're saying that Paul is now doing the same thing um, some 400 years later, and he is going to be put on trial in the same way before the very same court called the Oropagus, and Paul being the stubborn, short, bow-legged, bald-headed, one-eyebrowed guy that he was, that's the biblical, or not the biblical, it's an extra-biblical description, but that's the description of Paul, Paul being this stubborn little man decides to take the, the stand and preach not only to the Oropagus, but to all the other people that gathered in the city of Athens, and he decides to um, like unwaveringly preach Jesus big. I love this guy. I mean, I love this guy. Okay. Let's keep going, and then I'll pause. And I, what I want to do is see if we can sort of pull from the text and even what we know about Paul why it is that Paul is so perfectly fashioned for this moment. Okay. Verse 20. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, likening back again to Socrates. And we would like to know what they mean. Verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This is Dr. Luke sassing off, going all they do is sit and chat. I mean, he's totally making a commentary on the, their whole culture. Verse 22, Paul then stood up um, in the meeting of the Oropagus. So what do you do in court? At some point, you're put on the stand. You're tried. So Paul stands up, and he says, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. 
So you are ignorant. I mean, I'm telling you, when you're on trial for your life, this is what you want to say, right? You are ignorant. I mean, American, modern, forgive me for what I'm about to say, but you are stupid. Like, that's what, that is what he is communicating. You are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and that is what I am going to proclaim to you. In other words, I, Paul, know. You Athenians don't. You are ignorant, and I'm going to tell you. Sounds like somebody they should. I mean, I guarantee you there's people sitting there thinking, oh, just wait, we're going to get him. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. So this is a total paradigm flip because they have all these idols, and the people are out serving the idols, bringing things to the idols. So Paul's doing this full like kingdom upgrade or kingdom flip where he goes... um, Rather, he himself gives everyone life. So in other words, he's given you, Oropagus, life um, and breath and everything else. From one man, Adam, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times and histories and boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. If you want to make a note in your Bible, if you're making notes, I write all over my Bible, but write Psalms 2 because that's what Paul is referencing here. Almost assuredly, he's referencing Psalms 2. Verse 28, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. Now what's beautiful there is he's actually um, using their own philosophers, he's using their own people to preach Jesus to them. So in in a way, we could actually say um, that, that Paul is saying to them, What I'm saying here today about this King Jesus and his uh, resurrection, um, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension might sound new, but it is in fact timeless truth from the creator God, the one God. Um, It is timeless truth. And not only that, but the timeless truth has aspects hidden in your own culture and experience. That's the way Jesus is. He is universal. His experience, because he is God, he created the heavens and the earth. And in this moment, I would actually say what is, what is fully being played out in the Apostle Paul, and I would go, if there were six things that shaped the Apostle Paul. Remember, we're going to go from the Apostle Paul to Michael, and then we're going to go from Michael to you. Okay, here we go. The six things that shaped the Apostle Paul. First thing is he, is, this is Paul the Jew. I mean, this is so Jewish, the one God. I mean, this is almost, and I'm going to flip back here, Deuteronomy, look at that. That's on my screen. That is awesome. I, I'm smarter than I look. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5, this is the Jewish Shema prayer. So Jews, even to this day, many of them will recite this in the morning when they wake up and at night when they're going to bed. And here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So what's amazing is when Jesus lived on the earth and they ask him, Hey, Jesus, there's a passage, we're not going to go there this morning, but when they asked him, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus is actually in some ways sarcastically sassing back going, what was the Shema prayer that you prayed this morning? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and then he added the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as 
yourself. So back to this moment in Acts 17, we get to see Paul the apostle in many ways coming into the fullness of who he is from his Jewish roots. Now, Paul, um, second thing about him um, is he was born in Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is in modern day Turkey. Is that in the nation of Israel? No. Why is that important? Because Jesus' 12 disciples that rolled with him were mostly Galileans from a couple other places around the nation, but they were mostly Galileans, and people thought of, of Galileans kind of like hillbillies, okay? They were disrespected in some ways, just telling you the way it was. Um, but Paul uh, was strategically not only not born in Israel, he was actually born in Tarsus. And what's super important about this is Paul, being born in Tarsus, was born as a Roman citizen, and he was, he was trained um, not only in Jewish life, the Shema prayer, the, the, the Torah, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but he was also trained in Greek philosophy and Roman way of life. He's got a Greco-Roman worldview. Okay, so for the first time, you have the original 12 apostles that were the ones to reach their nation. They were the ones to speak authoritatively on the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of King Jesus. But all of a sudden, God picks another person, uh, uh, Paul, why he was born and named Saul. Um, but he picks this guy that's going now by, by Paul, and he begins to hone him and train him from a young age in Greco-Roman thought. Now, who rules the world right now? Rome, okay? So Paul is actually being fashioned from the time before he was born. So I can just imagine God Almighty sitting in heaven going, I am going to wait until, the Ro until Rome is in power. I am going to wait until the Roman roads are built, probably equivalent technologically speaking to our internet development of the late whatever, how many years that's been, 30 years. Um, but so God sovereignly is going, I'm going to wait to send Christ Jesus until those Roman roads are built. And then as Christ Jesus is coming to earth and living, there's simultaneously a guy named the Apostle Paul, well, Saul, going to be changed to Paul, um, who is being raised and he is being schooled in Greco-Roman thought. He is being shaped through his own um, challenges and difficulties in his life and livelihood. And he is going to be the one that cares carries the name of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the resurrection power of King Jesus from Jerusalem into Europe. Why are you and I believers today? Because Paul. I mean, you could argue that Paul is the greatest entrepreneur that ever lived. That's probably like world speak for apostle in my mind. Some of you are like, Whoa. What I mean by that is Paul went from city to city, preaching Jesus, sharing Jesus, seeing people converted, born again, give their life to him. Then he sets up elders and leaders and pastors, and he starts launching these churches. And he is the one that was fully formed and created from his Jewish roots, then being raised in um, Tarsus in this major metropolitan area with an appreciation for art and culture and an understanding of the Greco-Roman world. Now... Flip that one bit. He was released into ministry in a city called Antioch. Antioch is also in Turkey, 
Again, why is that important? Because the epicenter of the Christian movement shifts from Jerusalem to this place called Antioch. They actually call it like the breadbasket of Christianity or the cradle of Christianity. And it is where Christianity takes hold and is then launched to the entire known world. What's also powerful about that is Antioch is this multicultural Greco-Roman city. And if you take, I'm not trying to be offensive to the original apostles, but if you take the apostle Peter or John or even tax collector Matthew, and you send them up to Antioch, and all they speak is Jewish history and culture and background, and that's what they know and understand. Can they speak to Antioch? No. Can they speak to Athens? No. Can they speak to Corinth and Ephesus? No. So God has divinely, from like before time began, he chose Paul and he called him out. He allowed him to be raised in this crazy multicultural experience. He would have been raised with like Roman garrisons walking by. He would have been raised under the fear of Rome and their rule. I mean, he would have had so many experiences that would prepare him. And ultimately, he's going to die at the hand of Rome. It's wild. Okay, so we got Paul the Jew, we got Paul the man raised in Tarsus, then we have Paul the, the zealous murdering Pharisee. Man, if you go back into early Acts, you have Paul who um, is really, uh, he's raised a Pharisee, so he's got the Old Testament memory, right? He's like Pharisee of Pharisee, he knows it all, he's got, he is fully together, he is self-righteous, he is arrogant, and now he is out to actually kill Christians, and he kills Christians. He's going early in, and you can go back to early Acts and read, but he's literally going from house to house, city to city, and where Christians are meeting, he is dragging them out, and in some cases having them imprisoned, in some cases having them stoned. Now, this is super important because Paul has been this arrogant, self-righteous man who has now been totally humbled in Acts 8 and 9, if you want to go back and read that, so that he can now stand in a city like Athens and say, you who are ignorant. And just call it like it is. He's just, he's born and bred. He was created for this moment. Paul was by himself. I mean, like, there's moments in my own journey where I'm going along and someone has a differing opinion than me on something. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe I should have their opinion too. You know what I'm saying? Y'all follow me there? Yeah? Okay. Y'all do that? You put a little spin one way or another depending on who you're with? Uh-huh. I don't like that about myself. You probably don't like that about you either. Or maybe you're in denial and don't even know you do it. <laughs> Welcome to self-awareness. Paul has such internal strength at this point that has been formed and fashioned through his own brokenness through these 12 or 13 silent years and I preached all through that you can go back if you want where he he went um, into back to Tarsus and he went down um, to Arabia but Paul has been formed and fashioned and he is so steely at this point and he is so ready he has been raised as a Pharisee he knows Greco-Roman culture he knows ancient Jewish culture then he has been these 10 or 12 13 silent silent years working out the entire Old Testament and this transformation from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And now he is at this point where he is put on trial before the Oropagus, basically for his life. And he is able to stand there in all steeliness and strength and go, oh, no, 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 no. Here I stand and I will do no other. That's actually quoting Martin Luther when he was on trial, the guy that lived in the 1500s, the Reformation leader. 
But Paul stood there before the Oropagus and he declares, this is the God that made the world, that made you, that made everything in it, the one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Then we have Paul, the Roman citizen, educated, intelligent, focused. He's got a diverse experience. I mean, he is, a, he is in many ways, you could probably call him a Renaissance-type human in this day and age. He has this breadth and, and um, depth of experience. Then I'd also say that Paul is a Greek thinker and traveler. Um, so Athens is in Greece, and he is a Greek thinker and traveler. He understands what's going on, so much so that when we get to verse 28, I can't remember, I don't think I'm quite there, but skip down to verse 28. Paul's talking, and he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Twice. Those are both quotes. Um, where he is quoting Greek philosophers. So all of a sudden, you throw Paul into the middle of Athens, and Paul has been perfectly shaped and created sovereignly by God, creator of the universe from before time, and then at his birth, he is brought along to this place where he is able to now stand before the Oropagus, and he is able to speak to them in their own language. You hear me? It's so powerful that everything Paul was about to do was thought of and prepared for by God, and God used and shaped him. The next thing I'd say, the last thing I'd say about Paul is, this is Paul the Messiah convert and Paul the Christ follower. Now, let me begin to shift into your life and mine. If you try to fully comprehend the events of earth and the events of your life without the lens of the kingdom of God, you're going to miss it. Could Paul have understood how he had become this murderous zealot, how he had been raised in Tarsus, how he had been um, launched into ministry in Antioch, how he had memorized and been a Pharisee of Pharisees, studying at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. I mean, this guy had been shaped and prepared even through his own suffering. And then this radical conversion in, in Acts 8 and 9 where Jesus shows up and speaks to him on the Damascus Road and he surrenders his life to King Jesus and his life begins to change. And then he has these like 13 silent years where God shapes him in the wilderness and then God suddenly releases him in the ministry. Like, this is amazing. It reminds me of Matthew 16, 22 and 23, where Jesus was talking to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. And the apostle Peter's there, and Peter like rares up and bows up at Jesus and says, no way, you are not going to do that. And Jesus looks at him, you know what he says? Get behind me, Satan. Peter was looking through his own human lens. And when you downshift and look at your life and your circumstances, or Paul looks at his life, or Michael looks at my life, through my own lens and through my limited human understanding, you will always end up at odds with God the Father, God the Creator, because he is sovereign and he is up to something that transcends what you can think, understand, or imagine if you will hold on and stay the course. You hear me? Some of y'all are sitting in stuff today where you're like, why? 
Why? People ask all the time, why does a good God allow evil things to happen? Let's even open that for just a minute, because I'm going to come back to it. I would say to you, biblically, you have this idea of um, God's perfect will and then God's permissive will. Was it God's perfect will that Paul become a murdering zealot? No. Was it his permissive will? Yes. And was that the thing that ultimately broke Paul to the point where he was shattered and humble and broken before God so that he could be used to carry the gospel to Europe? 100%. Like, take that one to the bank. Okay, let me keep reading, and then we're going to tie it into me, and then to you. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. I mean, this is Paul, the Old Testament Jewish man, all the way. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands people, um, all people everywhere to repent. For he, can you imagine Paul's on trial for his life and he's telling them to what? I mean, this is crazy. The guy's got chops on trial for his life. And he's like, y'all bunch of ignorant people in the South. He go, all y'all bunch of ignorant people. You need to repent. I mean, he just cuts it straight. I'm like, what? For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who's the man? King Jesus, he has given proof to, of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At this, Paul left the council. Now, I would propose to you that that means he got set free. He was, you, you can leave. They did not vote. They did not decide to kill him. So he gets set free and then 34, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed among them Dionysus, a member of the Oropagus, also a woman named Demarius, um, and a number of others. And if you go into 18, it says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Isn't it interesting you never hear of the um, epistle to the Athens church? I mean, you just, I mean, like Athens, in some ways, it's like they were offered this thing. Paul cuts his teeth. He comes fully into who he was created to be. He preaches this powerful sermon where he's really on trial for his life. But Paul's like, forget all that. I'm operating out of the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, I'm going to step in who God, who God created me to be. And if you want, you can kill me, but I'm going to go be with Jesus because to live is Christ and to die is to gain Christ. So all of a sudden you got everything coming together in Paul. Every aspect of who he's created to be is all of a sudden being formed and then he is being launched into ministry. It's funny to me where he denounces um, temple or uh, idols made by human hands. And I was trying to think, and, and what is this even like as he stands in the Oropagus and denounces? I mean, th they would have been in sight of the Parthenon. Like, you can even go to Athens today and see that. But they would have been in sight of all of these temples, the Temple of Nike. There were so many temples. And Paul is denouncing that. The only thing I could even liken that to, and I read a commentator who said this, but the only thing I could find is we could go and stand in the middle of Wall Street and denounce the American banking system. Like, that's what he's doing. That's the level at which he is. It's like going to stand on the Supreme Court steps and denouncing the American judicial system. I mean, he is all by himself taking a stand and advocating for the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, here's the crux. 
Paul of Tarsus, Paul the Pharisee, Paul the Jew, Paul the murdering zealot, Paul the Roman citizen, Paul the Greek thinker, Paul the Messiah follower was perfectly made and perfectly fashioned for Athens. He was perfectly made and fashioned for Corinth. He was perfectly made and fashioned for Ephesus. He was perfectly made and fashioned for Rome. And he was perfectly made and fashioned to write two-thirds of our New Testament Bible. Bam. Let me tell you about me. In late 1999, December of 1999, um, I went to a conference. I'd graduated Hoggard High School. I was a student at UNCW. And um, I went to a conference, and I was a student leader and speaker for a group, but I went to a conference, and I met someone that would connect me and tie me in to a cult for seven years in which I would absolutely destroy my life. God supernaturally and sovereignly delivered me in 2008 by his great grace, by nothing I did. I'd even say, technically speaking, I was in this for about seven years. Um, I was fully estranged from my parents for five, but I was in it for a full seven years. Now, let me pause here and say something. If you're a teenager in the room, if you're a high school student, if you're a college student, if you're a young adult, be very, very careful who you tie your life to. Be very careful who you listen to. Be very careful who you put an authority over you and be very careful the peers that you put around you because you are doing things and choosing things that are going to set you up for the rest of your life. Was Paul forgiven and redeemed for being a murderous Pharisee. Yes. Does he carry with him that he killed Stephen? Yes. Is he forgiven? Fully. Is he now hanging out with Stephen in eternity? Yes. I can't wait to see both of them. I want to have a cup of coffee and sit there and ask them about it. Like, how did this work? I can't wait. What was it like when Paul bounced into heaven and Stephen was there? I mean, I guarantee Stephen gave him a big hug, but I want to know, what was it like? In Michael's situation, was it God's perfect will for Michael to get in a cult? No. And you could ask Abby. We have a sick child today. She's not here. But if you asked Abby, she would tell you the price that she has paid for my seven years has been extraordinary. There's never been a day where she hasn't dealt with difficulty and loss and challenges as God works to redeem Michael's life and our life. There's never been a day she hasn't had to face that. Is God redeeming Michael? 100%. Has he redeemed me? 100%. Is he going to continue to redeem me? 100%. But are those realities reality? Yes. Let me give you four points about you. We're going to put these on the screen. Point number one. I wish that I had these cute little quips. You know, I wish I was tweetable. I'm not tweetable. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like nuanced and difficult and like, 
But here's the thing. I want to know Jesus, and I want to know Jesus alone, and I don't really care about what's tweetable. I want to know him, and I want you to know him, and I want to walk with him, and I want you to walk with him. And any church I'm a part of, I want to be about knowing him, being known by him, being authentic before him and each other, and then walking powerfully in the resurrection power of King Jesus. Amen? Everything else can go. All right. Here it is. Point number one. On the divine chessboard of the unseen, all-powerful kingdom of God, everything that has happened to you, say everything. Every situation, every relationship, every evil, every good, every human rejection, every abuse, every choice you have made, good, bad, ugly, and sinful, when surrendered to the lordship of King Jesus will be used by him for his eternal glory, your eternal good, and his purposes on planet earth. You can take that one to the bank, you can stand on it, you can build your life on it. This is such good news. This is the bedrock, Jesus-centered gospel truth that you can build your life on. And I would say as a sub-point here, and I can't untangle this, but God's greatest glory and your greatest good are mystically intertwined in a way I can't unravel. That's why I'm not tweetable. I, I can't do it. But here's what I know. Just like the Apostle Paul, when you begin to bow your knee before him, surrendering all to him, giving him control of every area of your life, following him, taking on the character and likeness of Christ, learning to abide in him, learning to hear and listen and respond to his still small voice, he will use his greatest glory and your greatest good for his greatest purpose on the earth every time. Point number two. When we make choices that contradict God's perfect will and way in our lives, was God's perfect will that Michael would join a cult? No. Was it his permissive will? Yes. Is he powerfully using it? I think so. Because here's what would have probably happened. My plan was to plant a church. I was going to graduate UNCW, take a quick run through seminary, and plant a big church, and I probably would have built people around me. I'm now 43, and I would bet I'd have succeeded big, and I probably would have had some kind of internal meltdown and failure about now. And I am finding again and again and again that I go, Lord, I'm so grateful I'm 43. I'm so grateful I'm bald. I'm so grateful I've been in a cult. I'm so grateful that you've shattered me again and again and again and my own sin and failure and things done to me that were outside of my control and that I am learning to say above and beyond it all, it is well with my soul. God is good and he is glorious and I will follow him, walk with him and declare him boldly from this day until the day I die. When we make choices that contradicts God's perfect will and way in our lives, there is untold pain and suffering by our own making and willfulness. You hear me? But when we surrender our past to him, God will always redeem that pain and suffering for his glory, for our good, and for his purpose on the earth. In the meantime, be very careful you don't blame God for the results of your willful sin. We, a lot of Christians do this. I can't believe God is. I can't remember. And we get grumpy and angry and bitter and frustrated with God. And we're disappointed with him. And we camp out there. Stop blaming God for your own willful sin and get out of his way so he can redeem it. You hear me? 
You start calling it what it is. You acknowledge it humbly before him. You begin to learn to go, Father, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? And you call upon the resurrection power of King Jesus to work in and through you, in and through your relationship with your spouse or your roommate or people at work or your kids or whatever. And all of a sudden, the redemptive work of Jesus is here and it's real and it's in the now. And you can stop living um, grumping and blaming God for everything. Again, I'm cutting a line between God's perfect will and his permissive will. Let me also say in my situation, my entire family, some of them are sitting in here. My sister's right here. My friends, my cousins, my uncle and aunt, my acquaintances, every single human I knew warned me and said, Michael, you are wrong. Do not go join a cult. They weren't able to call it a cult at that point, but they went, something's wrong. Don't get into this. No, 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 no. But I was smarter and I was arrogant and I was wiser and I was invincible and I knew better than every one of them. And I marched headlong into willful disobedience and God has been working since to redeem my sin. That's the truth. All right, point number three. It's important. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you're enough. Now, let's pause here for just a minute. A lot of people are saying right now, you're enough. You're not. You're not, okay? I'm not. But when you put this in front of it, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, Michael has been crucified with Christ Jesus and Michael no longer lives, but Christ Jesus lives now in me and through me. The Apostle Paul, I have been, he actually wrote this. The Apostle Paul has been crucified with Christ Jesus and he no longer lives, but Christ Jesus now lives in him and through him. You have been crucified with Christ Jesus and if you are in Christ and in Christ is in you, you're enough, period. You are enough. You and all your failures, all your shames, all your shortcomings, your whole story is perfectly fashioned and you are created and equipped to walk in all that the God of heaven has foreordained for you. You have been divinely shaped by the hand of God. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, let me just, let me just, this is like a risk to say this, but I want to say this. I Michael, have spent years whispering to myself because of the hugeness of my sin. Michael, you're a failure. Michael, you've been married before Abby. Michael, you have adultery in your past. Michael, you have older kids that have currently rejected you. Michael, you have sin in your past. Michael, you're a shameful human. Michael, you're an embarrassment to God. Michael, you are a mar and a blight and an ugly scar on the face of Christianity. Michael, you have no right to stand on a stage and preach the gospel of King Jesus. You ought to be drug out in the street and executed for the damage that you have done to the body of Christ. You are a worthless piece of dung. You might sit there going, Michael, surely you're exaggerating. No, 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 no. You have no idea what I've been through and how long and arduous the journey of recovery has been. That is my self-talk in the past. Now, some of you have asked me, Michael, why do you do these daily declarations? Because of my self-talk. Are you ready for my daily declarations? This is how they start. I am a beloved son. I'm a new creation. My father says over me, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
I've exchanged all my fear and all my insecurity and all my shame. I've exchanged all my sin. And I am accepted by King Jesus. I am significant in Christ. I am secure in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. And King Jesus now lives in me and through me. And I am so grateful. I am 43 and I've lived through all that I have lived through. Because of that, Michael's enough to stand on a stage and to point to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Not because of seminary or education, but because I'm a redeemed failure. Let's go to my fourth point. This is the final one. You, dear friends, can choose to sit in judgment of God. You can choose to live in disappointment with God. You can be bitter and angry at God, or you can embrace that every single minutia of your life, everyone, has been perfectly allowed and perfectly crafted to shape you into his person, to bring you into a deep relationship with him and to accomplish his will and way in your life and on the earth. Like, y'all get this? So here's my message to you. Stop sitting in your shame. Stop sitting in your negative self-talk. Stop sitting in your failure. Stop focusing on what is not good or right in your life. Stop focusing on your lack or, your, or the failure of those around you. Stop focusing on your disease or your discomfort and start embracing that you have a seat at God's table both now and forever and start thinking and living like things are perfectly aligned and God has perfectly fashioned you every iota of your existence and experience to walk with King Jesus and to rule and reign with him on the earth. Start living like you're a son or a daughter. Start living like you're an heir and start participating with the king of kings and God of gods as he establishes his kingdom and way on the earth. Get out of your own way. And I'm preaching that to you because I've had to get out of my own way. And guess what? Some days I still have to get out of my own way. The apostle Paul same way, I promise. That's it, worship team. <laughs> Let's stand together. Prayer team, if you'll come up front and just make yourself available. This is a safe place not to be okay. This is a safe place to be in process. This is a safe place to be an atheist or a doubter or unsure. This is a safe place to be in your Jesus journey. And this is a safe place to be vulnerable with your sin and authentic with where you are. Because this is the God that isn't concerned about what you've done, but what he's done. Amen? All right, let's worship here and do allow the Holy Spirit to sift your heart. Allow him to begin to change you. Allow him to form you. And maybe you even want to begin to repent for some things that you've blamed him for or put on him. And you want to begin to lift your eyes into the kingdom of heaven, upgrading and beginning to see your life and your existence, not from your silly viewpoint, but from his. Come on, let's worship Jesus. And then I'll close this in a prayer. If you need special prayer, come on up here. If you want to just worship up here, the front's open too. The splendor of the King Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice 
Let all the earth rejoice. Oh, he wraps himself in light. And darkness tries to hide. <laughs> and it trembles at his voice. Oh, it trembles at his voice. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. Yeah, age to age he stands. And time is in his hands, the beginning and the end, the beginning and the end. Oh, the Godhead, three in one. Oh, Father, Spirit, Son, the Lion and the Lamb, the Lion and the You all are new creations. The old is gone. The new is here. 
Father, as we go from this place today, would you cause your face to shine on every human here? Father, would you reveal to us your heart of love that you haven't allowed things for pointless pain, but rather you have allowed things that would shape us and form us for your greater glory, for our greater good, and for your wonderful purpose on the earth. Father, would you allow us as people, every one of us in here, to upgrade, even those watching online, to upgrade our lives, to cash in our chips of bitterness and frustration and hurt and begin to go, no, 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 no. Everything in my life has been perfectly formed and fashioned so that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords could resurrect me and work through my weakness and my failure and my shame for his glory and my good. Amen and amen. Come on, Jesus. Woo! That's worth preaching about. If you're here and you've never given your life to this Jesus, there'll be a few of us down here. We would love to pray with you. It's a supernatural transaction. We've also got a Saltbox Connect in Smith Hall right outside these doors if you want to get connected and get on the membership pathway here at Saltbox. We love you because Jesus loves you. Amen. Go in Him. Thank you for joining us today. We are grateful to walk with you on your own Jesus journey to grow into a deeper relationship with King Jesus. For information to join us in person or online, check out saltboxchurch.com. Just Jesus, nothing more nothing less.